You're listening to Mythos, a storytelling podcast exploring folkloric realms. And this is Earthlore, a Mythos series that retells ancient myth and traditional folklore surrounding the cosmos, earth, flora, fauna, and natural phenomena. It is a strange thing to think of death as nutritious, that death can make living things into the elemental stuff of life. But as summer's verdant life begins to succumb to an inevitable end, as death transforms the landscape, the strangeness of that thought recedes, becoming something full of sense and meaning. This is especially true as I walk through a local woodland and beneath my feet are the remains of arboreal death, humus, that dark organic matter that forms in soil when plant and animal matter decays. When leaf litter and animals' remains decompose, they break down into their most basic chemical elements, elements that are nutritious to life. This breaking down of living things particularly as autumn transitions into winter on my northern island, inspired this episode of Mythos, which will focus on primordial giant stories, myths in which a giant is sacrificed in order to become the building block of creation. The first is a Norse myth, details of which can be found in the Prose and Poetic Eddas. The Prose Edda was written in 13th century Iceland, and is considered the fullest and most detailed source of Norse mythology. Drawing upon a variety of sources, the Prose Edda also references an older source, a collection of poems known as the Poetic Edda. The second story is from the Rigveda, an ancient Indian collection of Vedic Sanskrit hymns, one of the four sacred Hindu texts known as the Vedas. Story 1, The Giant and the Yawning Gap, from Norse Smith. They say, in a time older than earth memory, that King Gangleri of Sweden donned a cloak as gray as lowering storm clouds, covered his kingly raiment, left the affairs of state to trusted officials, and slipped into the foggy night. In the midst of a boulder-strewn moor, in the middle of a copse of ancient trees, there was a tent, and Gongleri breathed deeply from and into himself when he heard the drumming from that mean hide dwelling. And when he entered, he saw a soft fur stretched out in front of a shadow-shrouded form sitting cross-legged on the cold earth. Without a word, the king stretched out on the fur and closed his eyes breathing into the dark cavern of his mind, blowing away all thought of earth, 
and home and hope. The steady drum beats coursed and prodded through his mind, while his soul took trembling note of the immensity of space his mind occupied. The drum beats and his very life breath traced the contours of eternity and found no nooks and crannies, only space. First, the king's heartbeat in time to the rap doom, doom of the shaman's drum, for he was afraid of that expanse, anxious about where his human feet would land next. But soon, even his own heartbeat became a distant sound as the drumbeat sounded softly. So softly, somewhere in the folds of his gut and eternity. He would listen, always listen to that oral beacon as he traversed worlds beyond his own realm of Midgard. Suddenly, in a great rush of heaven breath, Gongleri had a sudden sense of solidness beneath his feet and in his eyes a reverberating impression, like the skin of a drum that has been struck. And when his soul eye opened, he beheld an ether of light, shadow and air that seemed fit for the very top of a mountain of the gods. It was an atmosphere that flew one's being into terror and ecstasy. It was ice and fire and far-reaching infinity. The king breathed again into the soft, oh-so-soft drum, that oral beacon, and took stock of his surroundings as best he could. Beneath his feet was a surface, as cold and hard as steel, and yet pulsing, singing with rainbow light. It also seemed to quiver beneath his feet, as if he were standing on the skin of a great beast. In awe, the king knew he was standing on the trembling bridge, Bifrost. He walked carefully, knowing that was all he need do, and that the cartography of this world was the cartography of intent. And as he walked, his sole eye beheld a great ravined presence, a vast wall it seemed, like the wall face of a great mountain, an infinite mountain, but like a column perhaps. Yet, this was not stone. It was creviced and rough and beautifully wounded. And with a flash of insight, the king knew he looked upon just a portion of the vast trunk of Yggdrasil. The hidden king drew his gray cloak tightly around him, feeling an infant's need for swaddling. His journey across Bifrost took an infinite second, and then his mind was overcome with a shining weight, a crushing glory. Then Gongleri, who had taken a page from Great Odin's book and disguised himself as an old man, passed through a fortress gate so vast it smothered his thoughts and drew out his deepest held gasp. Passing beneath he felt an ancient weight. He felt the cold breath of stone older than God memory. Stone that seemed to have been forged where chaotic dark fire and burning ice meet. At least so it felt in the king. Or shall we say the old traveler's gut. 
the impression bowed his mind and spirit as he passed through the gate. And then came a stabbing light, for Asgard's golden light felt to mortal eyes. So bright and encompassing was the light that Gongleri felt as if he were floating in a golden ether, for his sense of touch and sense of bodily presence was eclipsed. But as his eyes accustomed to the divine ambience, he saw a hall, a hall so towering the old traveler could not see or even conceive of a pinnacle. Shielding his eyes, he gasped to see golden shields covering the roof like shingles. Ah, Valhalla, whose doors were more than doors, but rather an entrance into pure warmth and victorious leisure. It was as if the dreams and longing of every northern man, woman, and child had been the building materials and heavenly architects had shaped them together. Hearth and fire grinned and sang with kissing heat. Laughter and music soared and swooped amongst warriors whose full stature in life were nothing compared to their nobility now. Gongleri could only gape as two such warriors approached him. And as the hidden king asked in trembling voice for lodging, evoking the great binding magic of hospitality, he could barely think for the fear that stinged his mind. Through muffled ear and thought, he heard them say that they would bring him before the Great One, one-eyed and all-seeing. And so, he was brought into a chamber of vast proportions, more mind-subduing than a thousand fjords, and on three high thrones were three presences. Warrior kings, yes, but all bound together by a single aura of sorts, a single pulsing sense of being that made the hidden king cower. Behold, high, just as high and third, said the fallen warrior guards behind Gongleri, who breathed deeply as a punching gust of fear rammed into his gut. Bowed and cowered, Gongleri said, I come, high ones, because I desire wisdom. And the three-in-one gazed at him with both wounded eye and whole eye before they said, You will not escape unharmed unless you grow wiser. So ask with heart and caution. For we will not give you the treasures of our gouged eye, of the trauma of celestial storms pummeling our tree-hung body, or of the terrible necromancing of that wise woman of old, the vulva, for her knowledge. We will not give what we have gained from these for trifling questions. And the hidden king asked his questions, because they weren't trifling. Questions he knew came from deep longing and empty terror. He asked about his great progenitor, the highest and oldest of the gods. He asked about beginnings and the great before. He asked immense things that made him feel terribly small.
And when he asked these questions, the high ones knew his intent and answered. Answered in responses that hit the air like a distant avalanche and visions projected to the mind's eye, visions that were as vivid and sublime as any God-breathed dream. Three in one gazed at him with both wounded eye and whole eye and answered. Mortal one, we will answer your questions. We sacrificed our very self unto ourselves on the great tree, and we stood on the pitch-black precipice of hell's domain to see and feel and hear what truly is and ever was. We necromanced with blood and will and word, and the vulva, that great seeress, rose from that deep domain to show us the first two great realms of the primordial eons, Niflheim, or the Dark World, that shielded its moors and vasslands with perpetual hoarfrost, and Moosebell, the Southron world of blinding flame, and running between them the yawning gap, a cosmic river valley that can cradle and consume entire worlds. Hearing these words, Gongleri gasped, for with these words he felt his soul body submerged in sight and sensation. He saw the great yawning gap with primordial rivers that ran far from any seeable source, and there, where an echoless vast darkness prevailed, the flow became poisonous like slurry, coal and mud rushing from an abandoned mine. But being so far from Moosebell, from sparks and glowing embers, and being so close to the Hyperborean Niflheim, the river became ice, with drops of water spewing out and frozen into a slick ice-glass rime. And so disorienting were these visions that Gongleri had to breathe deeply, breathe oh so deeply, into the soft, distant drum, resounding somewhere in the folds of his gut and eternity. As long as that shaman beat the drum in Midgard, he had hope of his soul returning to his body. And the three-in-one continued, spoke torrents of their serious wisdom, revealed vistas of deeper eternals. Ah, now, they said, in that abysmal chaos of stomach-dropping space, of glacial silence and skin-singeing fire, there was a middle. Again, Gongleri gasped, for his soul self was again sent soaring, and he found himself floating, floating in what felt like a summer sky, but so high and so vast that there wasn't even a hint of ground or solidness. And he went down, down through a firmament so mild, could cradle a naked infant. And far below his soul self, the hidden king saw the primordial river, saw Ganunagap, the yawning gap far larger than every majestic fjord ever seen or known. And here, there was such thawing and dripping 
such a vitalizing, soothing warmth and invigorating coolness that it felt deeply and truly alive. And something groaned, something stirred, and coalesced in that cauldron where fire and ice were at their most potent and life-giving. And Gongleri felt both awe and terror. And just when the sublime threatened to tear his soul-mind apart, he was back in the hall, listening to the three-in-one. They named that great one, that massive presence who stirred in that vast womb, Ganunagap. They called it Emir, a giant that could only be perceived by gods, for his stature touched outer worlds and beyond. He writhed and formed in the icy rhyme like the gluttonous chrysalis that somehow brings syrupy glops into a butterfly. But he was so much more vast, mind-breakingly vast. Gongleri felt his soul mouth asking the old ones, But how was Ymir sustained if he was indeed flesh and blood? And they answered, Odhumla. Within that icy, dripping rhyme, there was another being, a heifer, a cow rich in the nutrients of that life-quickening cauldron. Four rivers of milk ran from her udders, and Emir was nourished with goddess milk, drank pure being and vitality until his entire being was pulsing. And in that ancient milk of cosmic beginnings, there was mineral wealth and all the potentiality of ice, fire, or frost. And Emir drank that which was filled with the spirit of new beginnings. And then it came to be that the hidden king's soul body was submerged in a series of visions so all-consuming that it drowned out the shaman's drum. And Gongleri felt a nausea far greater than any seasickness. He watched Odhumla's great tongue lick blocks of salty ice for sustenance. And from these cyclopean blocks, the hair of a man appeared. And then the man's head, and then the whole man. But so much more than a man, for he needed no heifer milk. He simply was simply was all muscle and sinew and sight and mind at a great and eternal peak. And the three-in-one named this one. Buri, they said, Buri, our father, our progenitor who saw Emir and knew he must be returned to the cauldron from which he came, from whose armpits and copulating legs came the evil frost giants. Emir's being must be transmuted, changed for something good and whole and beautiful. And then the hidden king was blasted with a vision, the vision of the slain of Emir. And with this vision, the hidden king was threatened with the real possibility 
of being completely cut off from that distant drum, his compass and lifeline back to his mortal body. The sons of Buri killed Emir, and the hidden king could only see chaotic visions of hacked flesh and screaming bellows. But slay Emir they did, and these great ones brought the giant's dead body into middle of the yawning gap, where the spirits of embryonic worlds begged for flesh, where skin and blood and bone would mix with perfect warmth and cool. And as Gongleri watched the butchering of Ymir, the three in one spoke, chanted, sang the creation of Midgard. All father and his brothers magicked the great pools of blood into seas and lakes. And from the blood gushing from the cavernous wounds of the slain Ymir, they created the sea that surrounds the middle world of men and beasts. From the giant flesh, the mud and rock and humus of the earth was made, and like master sculptors they fashioned his bones into mountain cliffs. They created stony gravel paths for the wanderers of old, created these waves and byways from teeth and molars and small bones. And Gongleri's breaths became deeper, more rapid, anxious-ridden, for those breaths were his lifeline. They opened his inner ear to the drumbeat, his road home. Ah, but all father and his brother were not finished showing visions to the hidden king's soul body. They took a great white cavern of sorts, of no seeable scale, but rather with dimensions that had to be fearfully felt. And over the infant earth, this dome, this celestial sphere was erected. Ah, it was Emir's skull, which became the heavens. And with great sweeps of their hands, the gods flung Muspelheim's sparks into the middle of the sky. With whispers and shouts, they magicked the sun, moon, and stars into their places. With one final flick of their wrist, they threw Emir's gray matter, his ravine-born mind, into the sky. And from his brains, the clouds were born. Gongleri breathed and breathed centering his floating, nauseous being into the boom, boom of that terrestrial drumbeat. He had to remain connected. He knew he could not stay much longer, after all, and so he asked his final questions, the one being perhaps the closest to his heart. And me? the Hidden King asked, like a shy child and my parents and their parents and that great line of ancestors stretching into that incomprehensible past. Where did it begin? The three-in-one smiled and said, In the beginning, we walked the seashore, my brothers and I, and saw something magnificent. Two great pillars, rugged and ravined and beautiful, like Yggdrasil's great trunk, 
but these were smaller. They had fallen, and as my brothers and I approached, we could hear and feel a very distant voice, something crying out in the deep folds of tree bark and eternity. And without word or instruction, we followed a deep impulse. The first son of Buri breathed something like wind, fire, ice, and thought, all mixed together. And he breathed this into the trees. And the trees began to take gasping breaths themselves. The second son of Buri magicked another part of himself. And the trees began to take shape. They had limbs with movement and minds with intelligence. And then the third son of Buri kissed their souls and they were completed, whole and beautiful with form, speech, hearing, and sight. With the love and skill of the great artisans, the sons of Buri clothed them and named them Ask and Embla ash and elm, and from them all your ancestors had their origin. And with sudden force, great loud noises, including the steady, plodding drum, filled the great throne room. Coming from all directions was this cacophony, and Gong Larry clamped his eyes shut, willing his attention on the doom, doom, doom of the shaman's drum and a sudden gust of silence halted all, whereupon the hidden king opened his eyes. He was standing on a level plain, and there was no sign of the hall or the fortress. Now only the wide open sky and fresh rain-fed grass, the land he knew and cherished, that and the tent, now empty and silent. And so he left and traveled back to his people. And in the mead hall of his ancestors, he told all he had learned. And after him, grandmothers and aunties and fathers and uncles and beloved storytellers passed these things from one to the other.
Story 2, The Cosmic Sacrifice, from Indian Myth. In the beginning, a nothingness, gaping and panting, was the imperial all. Majestic was the dark, blank blackness, for writhing in its folds, deep in its infinite spaces, was something that always was and had been, and was beginning and yet had no beginning. Paradox and impossibility shone like a billion brilliant supernovas. And pervading it all was a gnawing love for something from nothing. This something would break the confines of mind and splinter brain cells if we could for a moment fathom it, contain it within our gray matter. If a soul could leave its body and witness this manifestation, this presence that contained all that has been and all that will be, the soul would feel this in a sensory apparatus much deeper than sight and hearing. For beholding Purusha, one would see the cosmic one, the thousand-eyed, thousand-headed, thousand-footed one. As soon as the primordial giant was born, he grew and spread eastward and westward over the whole nascent, rocky, barren earth. Perpetual was his vast presence on every side pervading this infant world. On every side, Purusha pervaded the earth and yet filled tiny spaces just ten fingers wide. Spirit and flesh, the giant was composed of earth and heaven and all the possibilities therein. All creatures were a quarter of his being. Three quarters of him was eternal life in heaven. So Purusha was the perfect sacrifice. As Purusha lay prone on the altar of the whole nascent, rocky, barren earth, the great patrons, those primal ones of pure being we call gods, these readied themselves. They bathed themselves in celestial pools for millennia, world without end. They held silent vigil in the surface fires of blazing sun. Dressed in their own sacred skin, and drinking the cold milk of the stars. The gods felt their tapas, that internal heat of blood and spirit. They felt this rise and rise until they were as hot as the blazing blue stars of the vast cosmos. They knew then that they had created two realms, the sacred and the profane. The gods willed into being a barrier and the gods created this tapas, this heat, as the sign of the great passing, the great passing from the mundane world into the world of spirit. The gods prepared their offering with spring itself, wet with dew and the sacrosanct of new beginnings. The spring was the oil. Then the holy gift they lay at the feet of the primal giant, this was autumn, all the wealth and possibility of decay. Then, around Purusha they laid the wood, the very heart and skeleton of lush summer. 
Seven fencing sticks or seven layers of fuel were prepared, and the gods bound Purusha as their victim. Then, fire. The blaze of their own tapas, the death sweat of a million stars. Purusha's great being was consumed by a raging, booming fire that was both flagrant and fantastic. And from Purusha's flaming being came vast drippings of fat. Fat, luxurious, and full of nutrition for a new world. This fat the gods gathered in the palms of their vast hands and waited, waited until every drop was ready for their work. The gods blazed in creative ecstasy in the womb of the cosmos, and from the holy fat drippings, they molded and carved and breathed beings into the creatures of the air. Violet and emerald cuckoos, woodpeckers with burnt orange wings, circling vultures with god eyes, the citrus and black great hornbill, and many others that have now died or transformed over the many millennia of the Earth's rotations. Then, land animals, both wild and tame, were formed from Purusha's lush and living drippings. Horses, cattle, goats, and sheep. And those wild beasts with heavy and majestic muscle and sinew. Rhinos, tigers, lions. To behold this great engendering would burn the mind and scramble the eyes, for during the sacrifice and the creative blaze of the gods, rakas and sama, mantras and hymns, boomed, boomed through all space and thought. The mantras and the hymns swirled and combusted in those prehistoric fires, and what was birthed in the cosmic womb of the gods' minds was not just the magnificent earth and her many offspring, but also the sacrificial formula. And as Purusha's mouth became the priest's, this flaming mouth cavern of tongue and teeth also became the water and flame and magical utterings of the sacrificial rite. But only after Purusha opened his mouth to bellow his agony, and from his burning breath was born Indra, the sky god, and Agni, the fire god. Indeed, following close on their heels, on Purusha's space-cooled breath came Vayu, the wind god. And all the while, as the giant's body writhed, but refused to become ash, the many peoples of the earth were born. His arms became the Rajanya, his thighs the Vaisya, his feet the Sudra. And amidst fire and boiling, dripping fat, in the middle of the great nothing, prone on the altar of the earth, Purusha's mind boiled and burned and became the moon. His eye, ballooning with heat and force, became the mighty sun. And with a rush of groan and force, the mid-air, the very air we breathe, burst from his navel, and as Purusha's head expanded and thinned to nothing from the force of that primal god heat, the gods fashioned the arching sky from his skull.
and so heat, air, oil, skin, vast in godlike proportions, was molded, thrown, exploded by the will of the gods, formed, loved. And when all was set into place, the mighty ones attained the height of heaven, where the Sidyas, the gods of old, are dwelling. And thanks for listening, everyone. In this episode, I used previous research around Scandinavian shamanism and Norse cosmology to inform King Gangleri's journey in the first story. My inspiration was Hilda Ellis Davidson's observations of the parallels between Yggdrasil, the world tree, which forms the center of sorts of the Norse cosmos, and the North Eurasian shamanic concept of a world tree rising through and connecting multiple worlds. Of course, visual representations of the exact shape and nature of the Norse cosmos isn't possible logically. Rather, King Gangleri's journey, as depicted in this version, is one of soul and spirit, where any kind of cartography must be almost impressionistic. And you'll have likely recognized Allfather, Odin, as high, just as high in third. I decided to not name him to shroud him in a sense of mystery. In the story of Purusha from the Rig Veda, the gods sacrificed Purusha, and from this great primal sacrifice was birthed the sacrificial process that would be used for generations and millennia to come. While I knew something of Diksha, or the holy rites of Hinduism, and have witnessed an elaborate, elaborate excuse me, puja, I knew very little about the different types of sacrifice. So after some research, I decided to model the sacrifice in the story after the Soma rituals of the Vedic period, as Soma is considered the highest type of ritual, and its processes of purification can last up to even a year. The online Encyclopedia Britannica has some very interesting I cannot talk today. <laughs> Some very interesting information on this. Thank you, thank you to my patrons for your continued support. If you'd like to become a patron, head over to Patreon and look up Mythos Podcast. And with more support, I'm able to spend more time each month creating content. £10 monthly patrons receive magnets bi-monthly, and these are of original folk art relating to the contents of the episodes. Um, I'm going to be procuring the folk art from, it could be from existing artists who I will get permission from, of course, um, also from archives, so folklore archives, um, as well as the UNESCO Intangible World Heritage website. So um, if you do support for £10 or $10 a month, you'll receive these magnets of, you know, they're, they're really lovely pieces of art relating to the stories, um, and you'll be getting some um, some really lovely pieces in the in the mail each month. Um, they are magnets about the size of a business card, and of course you will have an absolutely stunning fridge <laughs> if you um, receive all of them. So thank you again. Um, support me if you can, even if it's just for a fiver, and um, you'll hear from me next time. I don't know what the next episode of Earth Lore will be, 
Um, but I do have an absolutely stunning book that I've been wanting for ages called The Book of Symbols. Um, and I am going to be perusing that for ideas for the next episode of Earth Lore.